Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Sojourn. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it is good to be with you this morning. Today's a, a fun day, an exciting day. Uh, first and foremost, because we get to be together. We get to worship the living God together, as we've already done and will continue to do through our time in the service this morning, but it's also a fun and exciting day because we're going to see five people baptized today uh, in just a little while. So, so excited to do that just to celebrate the gospel in their lives, and so they'll be sharing some of their stories uh, about how Jesus has saved them, and then we'll see them take that step of obedience and baptism. So I know some of you probably are here this morning to support them uh, and cheer them on in that, and so if you're new here, we're grateful that you're here, whether this is your first time been coming for a few weeks, or you're a, a member, a regular attender here, uh, we're just grateful to be able to gather together as God's people this morning. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews, so if you need a copy of the Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand, we'll bring a few copies around. So just keep your hand up till they find you, and be able to read along with us out of uh, the book of Hebrews this morning. But as we begin our time in chapter 10 in Hebrews, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this time. So would you pray with me? God, you are our God. You are the God who is in the heavens and does all that he pleases. Lord, what an amazing reality that you are almighty, all-powerful, sovereign, and good, as we sang earlier. And Lord, that we get to know you. What What a gift that you have made yourself known to us and that we can be in relationship with you. And so we're grateful to have this time to direct our minds and our hearts towards you through the singing of your word, singing about you and reading of your word and preaching of your word this morning. And Father, I just confess, I was struck this morning by the fact, the reality that I oftentimes think that I love this church more than you do. So God, I ask that you'd forgive me for that because you love this church far more than I could even imagine. And you made that abundantly clear when you sent Jesus to die for us. And so Lord, we thank you that you love us. As silly and foolish and messy as we are at times, that you're such a faithful God to us. And so Lord, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that we'd reflect on that, your faithfulness. And that by reflecting on your faithfulness, that you would help us to have an enduring faith. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work in our hearts and our minds this morning, that you'd bring about transformation and change and encouragement and new life for your glory and for our good. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I've said this before, uh, but I don't have very much of a green thumb. I, I, I don't like to do anything in my yard uh, or work in my yard. We don't have a lot of landscaping in the yard. Um, I like the way it looks. Like, I like nice landscaping, and I like a nice-looking lawn, but I oftentimes am not the one that wants to actually make it look that way. And so we've got a couple of rose bushes in our front yard that I occasionally will trim, which I actually don't even know the right way to do that. I just start lopping off branches um, because it starts to get a little bit unruly, and so it's like, I guess I should cut those back. But I, I do appreciate the beauty of, uh, of a nice yard, nice flowers and color in a yard. And, and if you, I don't know if you noticed this before, but certain flowers during the day, they'll kind of open up, right? But then at night, they'll, they'll close up. The petals kind of close back together. And, and there's a lot of different theories about why that takes place. Obviously, we could say, well, that's the way God created it to be. But biologists and horticulturists have tried to figure out why is it that plants do that. And the common idea, at least to some degree, is that there's some aspect of self-preservation going on with that plant, that God's created it to do that to protect itself. 
And so whatever the specific reason is, that's the main reason. Whenever some adverse circumstance comes, the flower closes itself up, whether to protect itself from bugs or the cold or a lack of light. But sometimes I think if we look at our own lives, we can approach life in the same way. When an adverse circumstance comes into our lives or surrounds us in our lives, we can tend to or be tempted to retreat, to shut down, to close up in the name of self-preservation. And our culture promotes that. Our culture champions the idea of self-preservation, that you should look out for you first and foremost, that, that you should guard and protect and defend self no matter what the cost is to you or to anyone else. But what if the goal of the Christian life, the goal of following Jesus, isn't self-preservation at all? It actually has nothing to do with self-preservation. Well, as we come to our text today, we're going to see two things going on. One, there is a temptation for this small church community that the author is writing to. There's a temptation for them to shrink back from living out their faith because of persecution and challenge from the culture they find themselves in. And then the second thing we'll see is that the author is calling them not to do that. He's telling them, don't shrink back, but have enduring faith. An enduring faith that's grounded in a past reality and a future hope. And so there's a lot that we can learn from this text today, but my hope is, is that we di- as we dive into God's Word, that He will use it in our lives as individuals, that He will use it in our life together as a community to not walk by fear, but to walk by faith. To not shrink back, but press forward with humble boldness, to live boldly for Jesus and share the hope of Jesus with the lost and dying world around us. So let's go ahead and jump into our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at the last few verses in Hebrews 10 this morning, verses 32 through 39, to round out this chapter that we've been in over the last couple of months. This is God's word to us this morning. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This text that we are looking at this morning comes on the heels of a pretty intense and heavy text that we looked at last week. It was a text that was heavy and intense, but it was needed. It was needed for this church community made up of primarily recent Jewish converts who had believed in and started following Jesus. They believed that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, and he had done exactly what he said he came to do, to go to a cross, to bear the wrath of God for their sin, and then to be raised again from the grave. And so they began to follow Jesus 
And it needed, they needed this warning because there was a temptation to stop following him. And this warning that we looked at last week was needed for us as well. Because we need to understand and believe that there are real consequences for rejecting Christ. And verse 31 that we ended with last week is a, is a strong statement. It says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, apart from Christ and what he's done for us, we have no hope. But with Christ, with Christ, we have all of the hope in the world. So it's in light of that warning, it's in light of that challenge that the author gave in the text we looked at last week that the author of Hebrews goes on to where he does in this next section. See, we need to remember that he's a pastor. He has a pastor's heart, and these are his people. He loves them, and he cares for them. And so he seeks to encourage them and comfort them, as well as point them to the path ahead. He's seeking to shepherd them. Shepherd them to green pastures and still waters, even though right now they find themselves in a dry and weary land. And the way he does this is how we're going to break down this text this morning. What he does is he calls them to look back and remember and to look ahead and respond. To look back and remember and to look ahead and respond. We see this call to look back and remember in verses 32 through 34. After this hard-hitting exhortation in verses 26 through 31, the author says, but. He's saying, look, this isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of the story. What is, look, look at verse 32 again. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Recall the former days. This is not a call to sentimentality, though. It isn't that idea that sometimes we can have of, of looking back fondly on the good old days. And to be honest, that's usually not even a true statement anyway. Oftentimes we can look back in the rearview mirror thinking that, oh man, remember when everything was so much easier in life and so much easier in our country and there wasn't anything bad going on? Like, man, the 1950s and 60s, those were the good old days, except that we were fearful of nuclear attack from a foreign country and there was massive racism going on in our country. There are no good old days. So this isn't a call to sentimentality. It's a call to look back and remember their life of discipleship and following Jesus. He's saying, look back, don't, don't forget. And this isn't a time of following Jesus where it was carefree and it was easy and life was simple. It's a call to look back on the days of following Jesus when things were difficult and times were, were hard. See, they had come to know Christ believing that Jesus died for their sin and rose again from the grave, that he was the Son of God, is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. They trusted in him and they began to follow him. And, and he's reminding them, look, remember, after you came to know Christ, everything changed for you. Everything changed for you. God gave you a new life and he gave you a new heart. You no longer lived for yourself, but him who called you out of death and darkness into life and light. And because of this new reality, because you were following a new king and a new Lord, you experience hard struggle with sufferings from all kinds of different places and all kinds of different people. Now, a hard struggle has the idea of an athletic contest. In fact, the word here for hard struggle is, the Greek word there is, uh, is the word where we get athlete or athletic from. And so these are intense sweat-producing, anguishing, exhausting struggles that they have gone through. And he gives us a few examples of what those struggles look like. 
He said, look, some, some of you were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. They were ridiculed for their faith in Christ, oftentimes from people even in their own families, from their neighbors, from culture, from society. They were criticized for following Jesus, mocked for following Jesus. Oftentimes they were accused of wrongdoing because of following Jesus. We can look back in history and read different accounts of where the early church was blamed for different societal issues that were going on. It must be the Christians that caused this issue. And so they experienced affliction as well. They were put on public display to be put down and spit upon and beaten and imprisoned. To have all of their things taken away. We see that in verse 34, that they had their houses plundered, all their things taken, people coming in and ransacking all of their possessions and taking them all away. So that was the experience for some of these people he's writing to. And he says, others of you, though, maybe didn't have this public ridicule for following Jesus, but you experienced hard struggles with suffering by standing with those who did. See, it says they went to visit people in prison, people who'd been arrested for following Jesus, people who'd been falsely accused for following Jesus, people who'd been put in jail for their allegiance to Jesus. And in the first century Roman government, Oftentimes, when a prisoner was in prison, the only way for them to survive was if their friends or family would come to them and bring them clothes and bring them food. And so if they didn't have family, didn't have friends, then they would starve to death or freeze to death. And so it was the church, this church family of brothers and sisters that risked their very own lives, that risked themselves being thrown in prison, who would go to their new family their brothers and sisters, bringing them clothes and bringing them food without fear of being associated with them, knowing that by them showing up at that prison and giving them these gifts, that they too could be thrown into jail as well. But they went. This is their new family. And for many of these people, it was their only family. So they went to visit them. See, solidarity is powerful against oppression. It's powerful against oppression. And that was, that's just as true today as it was then. That when we stand in solidarity with those who are going through suffering for whatever that reason might be, because of their skin color, because of their social class, because of their beliefs, then when we stand with one another, there's solidarity and it's powerful against those that would seek to tear us down. But we see, that doesn't come up on our own. We don't do that on our own. It's not our own idea. Christ did the same thing for us. He, he took on our humanity. He identified with us in every way in our oppression in order to set us free from it. Oppression from sin and oppression from the enemy. Sharing in each other's sufferings is fellowship and family at the deepest level. This persecution, though, they experienced likely came from two fronts. One from society and culture and family and friends, people that didn't understand what it meant to know Jesus and follow Jesus and didn't like these people who were doing that. But it also came from religious leaders of the day who didn't like Jesus and didn't like this idea of following Jesus either. And so in these moments for them that he's calling them to remember is saying, look, remember all you had then was Jesus and one another and that was enough. That was enough. You see, all through all those trials, he's reminding them that they endured. They didn't turn their back on following Christ. They kept pushing forward in faith. And that's the author's point here. As you look back, remember, church. Remember, by God's grace, you showed great courage in those days. So don't abandon it now. Because they're still experiencing suffering. 
they're still experiencing difficulty. He's saying you were able to joyfully have all of your things taken from you. Joyfully. People coming into your home, taking all of your possessions and things, and you were able to do that because you believe that you have a better possession, an abiding one, a treasure that will not go away. And that also hasn't changed. Jesus is still a better treasure. You saw yourself as a sojourner before, as someone who was just passing through, that this place is not your home, and that hasn't changed. Looking ahead to a future hope. So continue to have a courageous confession now. See, he's calling them in these first few verses to remember God's faithfulness. To remember God's faithfulness to his plans and his promises and his people. And at the same time, to remember their faith in his faithfulness. You've trusted God before. He's seen you through. Keep trusting him. He's pastoring them in this moment. He's pointing out evidences of grace in their life from the past in order to encourage them to faithfully endure for the future. Which leads to our next point as he calls them to look ahead. But before we get to that, let me ask you a question. What does it look like in your life to remember God's faithfulness to you? What does it look like to remember God's faithfulness to you? We could go back to the story of God's people as they've wandered in the desert for some 40 years, this wandering in the wilderness, and this new generation has been brought up. The parents and the grandparents have passed away who were disobedient, and God gives this future generation the hope of this promised land. And they're about to enter into this promised land that he's called them to, and they're going to cross over the Jordan River. And so God does, for the second time in this Exodus journey, he parts the water of the river so they might pass through it. It was really a baptism of his people. Just like we're going to see this morning, they passed through the water as a new people who were walking by faith in their God. But as they passed through the water, he called them to do something. He said, I want you to collect 12 stones. 12 stones that were one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And these stones, these rocks were rocks of remembrance. And the the word sometimes we sing or you see in the scriptures is to build an Ebenezer, a, a memorial of sorts to look back and remember the faithfulness of God. That any time they're struggling to believe that God is good, that he's going to see them through, that they can go back to that spot and they can look at it again and go, yes, I remember God saw us through the wilderness and he saw us through the water. Whenever they're doubting whether or not God's going to protect them or look out for them or be there for them, they could go back and say, yes, I remember. God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what are those things in your life? I have a few tattoos some of my, on both of my arms. On my right arm, I have uh, the word grace in Greek and the Louisville city symbol on my arm. And the reason I have that is because during our time living in Louisville, God did a lot of different things in my life. He saw me through seminary, me and my family through seminary. My first child was born while we were there. And during that two-year period that we were there, God just continued to show me and help me understand more and more of his grace. And it was a difficult time for our family. It It was a struggle in different ways for our family, but it was so good. And so it was a time of grace. On my left arm, I've got the word disciple in Greek, and it reminds me of who I am and who I follow. And right below that on my arm, I have an anchor, and there's a banner on that anchor that says anchor of my soul. 
And it's a phrase taken from Hebrews chapter 6 in an image from one of my favorite hymns, A Solid Rock. And I remember thinking, I mean, you should think about this if you're going to get a tattoo, right? It's like, it's not going away. So I need, I need to think about what it is that I'm getting put on my body. But I remember thinking, I'm fine getting these permanent things on my body because I'll never not be or believe these things. But then I entered into a really hard season of life and ministry in 2015 and 2016, and I doubted all of those things. God, do I really believe in your grace right now? Can can I keep following you? Will you sustain me? God, it says I believe you're the anchor of my soul, but are you going to help me? Am I going to stay rooted in you? Because right now I don't know if I believe that you're going to see me through this awful time. But then looking at them and thinking about what they mean also served as that reminder to go back and remember. God, you've been faithful before. Why would I doubt your faithfulness now? You've been faithful before. God, you've helped me endure with joy. So Lord, I can say to you now, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me still believe these things to be true. So what are some things for you? What are some means in your life to help you look back and remember the faithfulness of God to you? Especially when faithfully following Jesus gets hard. Because those times have come for some of you and will come for all of us. He calls them to look back. He calls them to look back and remember, and he also calls them to look ahead and respond. It doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop with looking back on the past, but it has to be about looking forward to the future as well. And so he says, therefore, in verse 35, therefore, because of God's faithfulness and your faith, you have confidence. So don't throw it away. Don't throw it away now. You can finish the race that's laid before you and you will get a great reward. And what's that reward? Is it crowns in heaven? Is it mansions? Is it a lot of fun in life? No, we get God. We get to be with him, face to face with him, get to dwell with him forever in the new city. But now things are difficult. Now things are hard. Now there are challenges and trials that we experience. There's temptations and there's an active enemy whose main goal is to steal, kill, and destroy you. And so you need endurance, he says in verse 36. You need endurance to finish this race like an athlete running an ultra marathon. It's not just 26.2 miles. We're going 100 miles. We have to keep moving forward. We need to reach the end, and we can do that by not giving up and not shrinking back along the way. See, what the author is doing here is giving them and calling them to have an eternal perspective. That's what enduring faith is about. It's having an eternal perspective, looking ahead to a greater hope for the future. To view life, not in light of your present reality or your present circumstances, but life and a future hope in the plans and promises of God. That's the reality of what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have this treasure of Jesus, this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. He's talking about our, our bodies, these broken down bodies, these weak bodies. We carry it in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. 
perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Then he goes on to say, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is a call for us to have our hearts in heaven, not on the things of this world. Being willing to suffer the loss of all things because we know that all things pale in comparison to the eternal rewards of being with our God. See, the author's helping us. He's helping them to lift our gaze and look ahead to see that it is worth following Jesus no matter what. And so he calls us to have enduring faith. Keep believing because God is faithful. And I love what he does next in this text. He goes to an Old Testament text and he, he paraphrases it a bit. It's from the book of Habakkuk, and, he, and he's talking in Habakkuk about a time that God's people are going through intense suffering, intense difficulty. And so this is what he says. He says, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Yet a little while. The words of a gentle pastor shepherd who has given hard words of truth but is full of grace and love and hope for his flock. Yet a little while and the coming one will come. Who is Jesus? Jesus will come again, the king of kings, the triumphant one, the sin killer, serpent crusher, death defeater. He has come. In John 14, Jesus says that he goes to the Father to prepare a place for us, and he will come again back for us. One day, Jesus will return, and he will crack the sky, and he will bring about the new heavens and the new earth and the new city, and will sit on the throne and will declare for every single person to hear, behold, I am making all things new. The day when everything sad becomes untrue. When there's no more sin, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more death, no more darkness. Life forever with our God and King. But now we wait. Now we who've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we live by faith. Faith in this future grace, this coming day when all will be renewed and all will be restored. See, sometimes in the midst of trial and difficulty in life, especially for following Jesus, we can, when we're experiencing this persecution and affliction, we can wonder, why is it taking so long, God? Why is it taking so long? And Peter, writing to another church who was also suffering the pains of a broken down world, reminds us. He says in 2 Peter 3, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And the same is true for us. We also find ourselves in a broken down world. There's violence and disease. There's death. There's racism. There's threats of war. There's division and disunity. There's persecution and affliction. But our hope is the same now as it was then. 
It's in what is to come and the victory that Jesus has already won for us. See, victory isn't the absence of trial in your life. Victory isn't the removal of people in your life who are causing you difficulty or making your life miserable for following Jesus. As one pastor says, victorious Christianity is not something that takes place at political rallies. Nor is it defined by rising sales of Christian products in the store. No, victorious Christianity is what happens when a grieving believer smiles through tears at a graveside thinking of the resurrection morning. Victorious Christianity comes when a follower of Jesus shows love to an unpleasant neighbor because of the love of Christ for the world. Victory is gained today when persecuted believers like this Hebrew Christian community stand firm before the mocking culture, refusing to abandon their creed. Victory is standing beside fellow believers in their persecution, and it's singing hymns of joy while jobs and houses and friends are lost. That's victorious Christianity, and that's what it looks like to wait for our blessed hope for Christ to return. And so the author declares in verse 39, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. See, shrinking back is what the people, that the previous warning was aimed at. But we're not those people as we continue in faith, continuing to trust in Jesus, continuing to follow Jesus, continuing to believe that Jesus is better. Brothers and sisters, we are more than conquerors. You and I, if we are in Christ, are children of the living God who was and is and is to come. We can't forget that, and we need to move forward in that. So the text calls us to look back and remember, and it calls us to look ahead and respond with enduring faith. So what does that look like for us? Well, the persecuted church in the world right now knows firsthand what this is like. There are many of our brothers and sisters around the world right now that know the reality of this text with great clarity. Their life lived for Christ warrants persecution on a daily basis, and we can learn from them because so often they suffer with joy. They suffer with joy. There are many places in the world right now where if you identify with Jesus, if you follow Jesus, if you tell other people about Jesus, that the law of the land is that you should be killed for that. It's capital punishment. Not just thrown in jail, but having your head cut off for following Jesus. But what about us here? I mean, we're meeting in a public school for crying out loud. We, we don't experience that same thing here, but sometimes we hear things like, well, America, America's a Christian nation and we need to get back to our roots. But that's just not true. America's never been a Christian nation. It's been advantageous to be a Christian sometimes in our nation. But America, most of the time, has been full of cultural Christianity. It's been advantageous at times to, be, to call yourself a Christian even if you weren't actually following Jesus in our country. But man, that's changing. The church is being pushed more and more to the margins of our culture. And listen to me, that is a very, very good thing for us. Because listen, moving to the margins, it'll be good for the American church. It'll be good especially for the American church made up of majority culture people. Because when we are pushed to the margins, maybe perhaps by God's grace, we'll finally start listening to and identifying with the rest of the marginalized. 
that people for her, their whole life, their whole experience of growing up because of the way that they look have been pushed to the margins. It'd be good for God's people to identify more regularly with that. What are we going to do? Verse 33 says that we stand with those who have experienced suffering, experienced affliction. Are we going to be willing to help those who've come to faith in Jesus, whose families reject them and kick them out? Will we invite them into our homes? When someone's fleeing their country right now because of religious persecution, do we open our arms to them? Say, so, brother, sister, you can stay with me. You can live with me. When someone loses their job for following Jesus, are we the first ones there to pay their bills for them and provide food for them? Because more and more, that's going to be the case. In America, it's becoming more and more inconvenient to not only claim the name of Christ, but to actually follow him. And that might be new to us, but it's not new to our brothers and sisters in Yemen and Burma and Indonesia and Iraq and Syria who know this all too well. See, standing up for the king and his ways, seeking to follow him in all of life in America will increasingly affect your employment. It'll affect your advancement, your education, your ability to obey the government and its mandates. But here's a temptation for us. When you're being pushed to the margins, the temptation for you in that is to embrace worldliness all the more. And that's what it means to shrink back. And we see this in our country even now. There are people who claim to follow Jesus, but seem to easily compromise the characteristics of the kingdom of God when it would be better for them to do that in order to be found in favor of those who are in power. We see pastors and leaders doing that right now. But listen to me, we cannot seek to bow down to puny pretend kings when the king of kings calls us to lay down our life, take up our cross, and follow him, no matter what the cost might be. As one pastor says, Christians don't have to win the culture war, nor should we expect worldly triumphs. Our first goal is always to be true to the faith in this hostile world, standing on the solid rock of Christ. Because see, as we look back and remember and look ahead and respond, we realize that our confidence in those moments is not in ourselves, but in God. The reason anyone can have enduring faith is because of the faithfulness of God. And in chapter 11 of Hebrews, the author is going to lay out a ton of examples of that. But one example that comes to mind for me this morning that's worth mentioning today is the example of the early church, particularly in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, the church is spreading, the gospel is going forward, Jesus is being preached and proclaimed, and Peter and John are arrested. And they're told, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And the line is so great that they give it back, like, we'll let you decide whether we're going to, it's better for us to listen to you or Jesus, but we're going to keep preaching Jesus. And so they treat them poorly, and then they release them from jail, and they go back and they gather together as the church, not out of fear, but to pray. But you know what they pray for in Acts chapter 4? They don't pray for protection. They pray for boldness. They pray for boldness that they would be able to go back out of their homes, back into that same culture and that same society that hates Jesus and keep telling people about him. Because they remembered the faithfulness of their God and they responded with enduring faith to make much of Jesus until he returns or calls them home. You and I can do the same thing. We can gather together to pray for boldness. We're going to have family prayer in just a, a week or so 
to pray for boldness, that God would give us boldness to go out into our, our, our city and our, and our country and our world to proclaim Jesus. And we can pray for that, but we can also pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters, standing up with them, enduring with them, praying that they also would have joy and boldness as well. Because see, enduring faith is bold faith. And as the church is pushed further to the margins, the greater impact we can have because the brightness of Christ will shine all the more as the world gets darker and darker. Man, if you're here this morning and you don't actually know Christ, our hope is that would happen in your life, that the light of Jesus would shine into your heart and your life. That you would understand that Jesus is your only hope. That he died on the cross for your sin and was raised to new life. And that anything else this world promises you is empty and will not last. See, Acts 4 is the opposite of shrinking back. Now, not shrinking back isn't about being a fighter. It isn't about being mean-spirited. It isn't about standing on a college campus and yelling at people, telling them they're going to go to hell. That's not what it means to not shrink back. No, not shrinking back is about walking in patient, gracious, loving, humble boldness. It's the upside-down way of Jesus. Jesus, who when reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, did not threaten, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Sojourn, a faith-filled people with an eternal hope and a victorious Jesus don't sit idly by. We put ourselves out there. We put ourselves out there and live boldly for Christ in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our campus, and in our classroom. We live sacrificially with all of life, willingly giving up all of our things because we believe that we have a better and an abiding possession. Those that have enduring faith don't live with complacent hearts and closed hands and cowering fear. Where might you be doing that right now? Where might you be doing that? See, we walk by faith in the one who lived and died and rose again for us now empowers us to suffer with him and for him and stand with those who do. Sojourn, yet a little while and our king will come again. Yet a little while. And we will cross the threshold into the new city and we will no longer need to endure, but will rest because Christ has enabled us to endure. But until that day, we can join with the universal church who for thousands of years has prayed the prayer of the apostle John, amen, come Lord Jesus. As we come forward today to take communion, we join in on and partake of a holy and sacred meal, a meal that has been enjoyed by and celebrated by the church for some 2,000 years. It's a meal of remembrance and a meal of response. As we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we're reminded and refreshed in the truth that Christ's body was broken for us and Christ's blood was shed for us so that you and I might become children of God, saved from our sin. But it's also a meal of response. Because Jesus says, every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Until he comes again. So may this meal encourage you to hold fast, to have enduring faith no matter what has, is, or will come your way until Jesus returns or calls you home. And for those of you that are not followers of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning to take communion. And the reason for that is because this meal is that declaration. We're proclaiming Jesus' death and the life we have in him. And so if you don't yet believe that, just hang out in your seat. 
And pray, I'd encourage you, implore you this morning to take Christ. Pray and ask God to save you today that you might start a relationship with Jesus. And then let somebody around you know that so we can journey with you in that. We can walk with you in that. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or head to the tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread. Take a small cup to drink. And what Christ has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come before you and we just ask very simply, help us to have an enduring faith. Help us, Lord, to look back and remember, especially when things are going, hard, are going difficult for us, when they're, when they're challenging to us, when people are ridiculing us or mocking us or we're tempted not to keep following you. Would you help us to look back and remember your faithfulness? But Lord, help us to look ahead and respond in enduring faith to keep following you, knowing that we have a, a possession, a confident possession, an abiding one with you forever. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who don't shrink back, but pray for boldness. And that you would grant us that boldness to go out into our workplaces and neighborhoods and campus and classrooms and proclaim the name of Jesus, and that we would stand up with our persecuted brothers and sisters and pray for boldness for them and stand with them in the midst of persecution. Father, as the church moves more and more to the margins of our culture and our society, may we not grieve that but celebrate that and look forward to where the brightness of Christ might shine all the more in a world that so desperately needs you. So Lord, help us to be faithful as you've been faithful to us. We love you, we praise you, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.